right, well, we're um, back in Mark chapter 12, so if you want to please open your Bibles there, that would be great. And as we look at this passage with Jesus and, and one of the scribes, you sort of anticipate, or you, you might expect, and you would be right to expect, that it would be antagonistic, uh, but it's not. This is, uh, this is an interesting encounter for that reason alone. Uh, and we, we hear Jesus describe what proximity to the kingdom looks like. Um, and he, uh, he says that this scribe is not, not far from the kingdom um, you know, that, that's good news in a sense. I mean, we, we keep hearing that we're not far from a vaccine, um, which means that we're not far from a day when, you know, we're not going to be hearing daily death reports. Uh, we're not far uh, from a day when we're not going to hear about rising in, infection rates. So, so that's, that's good, right? Uh, we're not far from, uh, hopefully, the economy turning around and uh, we're not far from uh, unemployment numbers decreasing instead of increasing. We're not, we're not far from a, a day when we can take all these masks off and stop worrying about uh, social distancing. That's good. And we're not, I hope we're not far uh, from an end to racism. And I hope we're not far uh, from the profiling and the injustice that... Uh, you know, we can say people of color, but most often it seems to be our black brothers and sisters, what they have to endure. Um, I hope we're not far. But in, in saying these things about uh, whether it's the pandemic or, or whether it's, uh, it's racism, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I think we need to be mindful of is that uh, that sounds like good news, but it's, it's also like, but, but we're not there yet. Uh, so there's a, a, a sadness, a heaviness, a, a disappointment uh, to the fact that even though we're not far, we're, we, we still haven't arrived yet. And so there's this blending that I want you to see going on in this passage in, in Mark uh, chapter 12. So while you've got your, your Bibles open or your apps open, uh, let's stand in honor of God's Word. And I'm going to read uh, verses 28 uh, to 37 here. So one of the scribes came up to Jesus and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, 
How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do give you thanks for your word. Uh, We pray that we would see and know and enter into Jesus more fully as a result. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, well, this is uh, an encounter between one scribe who seems to be sincere and genuinely curious about what Jesus considers to be the, the greatest commandment. Uh, and then there's like almost this postlude where you've got uh, a number of scribes uh, who Jesus is referring to and how they view uh, David's heir, uh, how they even view the Psalms. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 here. And, uh, and so there's some things that I, I certainly want to call attention to, like this question, which is the greatest commandment? That's important. And then Jesus' response to the scribe, you know, you're not far from the kingdom of God. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But, but I think what this uh, entire section, not just the conversation between the single scribe, but the, the question that Jesus poses to the scribes in general, who are the the experts in the law, they're, they're the you know, religious professionals, they're the theologians. They know the Bible cover to cover. And so they're, they're really the, the Bible experts, the Old Testament experts as we would perceive them. Uh, and and we, we learn some things from this line of questioning and response between Jesus and this one scribe and, and then Jesus' reference to, to all of the scribes. And what we learn is what, what do... What does the perimeter of the kingdom of God look like? Uh, what's around the edges of the kingdom of God? So you've got a couple of things that are happening here. Um, you have this scribe who one commentator says, this is the only uh, example in the Gospels where a scribe or a teacher of the law agrees with Jesus, which is which is kind of alarming. This is the only time where, where a scribe is actually agreeing with Jesus. Um, and that tells you something. Uh, so his, his conversation begins with this question about which commandment is the most important of all. He's heard Jesus having a dialogue with the Sadducees. And Kyle covered this two weeks ago. He did a great job of just describing how uh, the real nature of the resurrection and the, the Sadducees have this you know, sort of silly hypothetical question about this woman and she's widowed seven times and whose husband, you know, will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus just kind of explodes the whole um, false notion. And so this scribe hears Jesus answering wisely, answering well, and he's impressed with Jesus and he genuinely seems to want an answer to his question, what's the greatest commandment? Which seems like a pretty good question. I mean, that, that makes sense. Uh, there, if all you have is the Old Testament, uh, and if you are part of a culture and a religious tradition that 
focuses uh, an, an inordinate amount of energy on the commandments, all 613 commandments, whether they're prohibitions, you know, don't do this, or, or prescriptions, you know, you, you should be doing this. Uh, this Jewish culture and, and, and spiritual environment is such that people have a high regard for the commandments. And, and, and as you might imagine, with that many commandments, there's this normal um, uh, conversation and, and uh, attempt to kind of determine, well, which ones are the really important commandments and which ones are the not as important, you know, if you were to prioritize them. Which would be at the top and which would be at the bottom? Uh, Jesus acknowledges this himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, if any of you would cause um, somebody to, to disregard even the least of the commandments, uh, you know, then he will be least in, in God's regard. So, right, there's kind of the, the most important commandments, but the least important. I mean, they're all important, but the, you can't help, right, with that many. All right, well, well, somebody help me understand how to synthesize all these and just boil it down. And you can read the rabbinic literature. Like, this is for real. In, in the historical rabbinical literature, different rabbis attempt this very same um, thing where, where they, they give a summary of what's the, what's the most important commandment. And Jesus kind of takes the bait. He answers the guy's question. He, he gives an answer to the question, but what does the question assume? That's, that's what I want to ask. What's behind the question? What's on the edge of, of the kingdom? Uh, to, to get into the kingdom is one thing. To be on the outside of the kingdom is another. This scribe is near. He's not far from the kingdom, but he's not in yet. And the reason why he's not in yet is he's still hanging out around the edges. His question reveals to us, his assumption is, I can get a handle on the commandments. If I can just nail down what's the most important commandment, if I can major on the majors and, you know, try to give attention to the minors, of course, but, but I'm, I, he, you, you realize his question divulges an assumption that he can, he can somehow manage the commandments. And this isn't unusual. This is what happens around the edges of the kingdom when people bring a moral or a legal presupposition to the kingdom of God, thinking if I can be good enough, if I can be obedient enough, if I can be moral enough and legal enough, I'll get in. I'll get in. This scribe is not in yet. He's, he's, he's near, he's not far, but he's not in yet with, with this attitude toward, toward the law. There's some other things that you see in this exchange uh, that, that I think are important. Uh, you see not only this legal, moral assumption, but interestingly from the same scribe who Jesus is, is sort of saying, come, come further, you're, you're close, but you're not there yet. Uh, from the same scribe, we hear something really significant as well. Because the scribe affirms, again, it's the only time in the Gospels, the scribe affirms Jesus' response. 
And he says that you're right, you know, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the scribe understands that there's a priority placed on loving God that, that trumps all obedience and sacrifice and uh, ceremony, all, all the sacrificial system, all the ceremonial system, all the formalism of the temple where this conversation is even taking place. Uh, all of that is being put in its proper place underneath and, and, and supplemental to a, a real relationship with God, a, a loving heart relationship with God. Uh, the scribe is, he's a scribe, he's an expert in the law, and he's quoting the prophets back to Jesus, demonstrating, yeah, I get it. Uh, Hosea, for instance, says, um, you know, through the, through the prophet, God is speaking, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud like the dew that goes early away. Uh, what's, what's God's complaint? Uh, their affection is fair weather. Uh, it is temporary, like the fog that burns off you know, by mid-morning. And the plea is uh, in Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire steadfast love. Not this ephemeral love, steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so this is something else that we see is on the edges of the kingdom, on, on the periphery. Uh, that that it's, it's good to be sacrificial. It is good to acknowledge the, the virtue and benefit of, of certain forms and ceremonies uh, and, you know, the things that accompany uh, a real relationship with God, uh, even our worship this, this morning, is, is a help. But this isn't what gets us into the kingdom. Coming to church or, you know, watching online doesn't get you into the kingdom. This is, uh, you know, the sacrifices aren't what matter. The heart is what matters. So Paul, for instance, you know, his chapter on love, right? This is all a discussion about love, ultimately. Love in the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, your neighbor as yourself. And, you know, Judah and Ephraim, your, your love is like this, you know, temporal mist. And I want steadfast love. Well, Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, you know, if I give away all that I have and even deliver my body up as a burnt offering, but have not love I gain nothing. I gain nothing. It, it isn't at the heart of the kingdom. It's not what gets you into the kingdom of God. It's not what gets me into the kingdom of God. Uh, you know, so whether it's a legal moral perspective or this sacrificial formal perspective, uh, none of those in and of themselves are sufficient to get us into the kingdom. Uh, we we learn one more thing about what's at the edges of the kingdom from this, this entire passage. And this is in this subsequent you know, question that Jesus poses uh, in the context of all of the scribes, right? And in verse 35, 
Jesus is, you know, he's in the temple, as you see, and he says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus uses uh, Psalm 110, a, a psalm that the scribes would be very, very familiar with, a, a psalm that, I mean, let's face it, like, every Jewish person would be very familiar with because uh, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted passage from the Old Testament that's in our New Testament. Uh, and I, if I'm remembering it correctly, it's, it's, it's directly quoted or alluded to 33 times in the New Testament alone. So very, very well-recognized psalm. Uh, in, in this culture, in this time period, in, in Jer- Jerusalem and in Israel. And so Jesus, you know, breaks out Psalm 110, Psalm that everybody knows, especially the scribes, and he's posing this question. Now look, this Psalm has David addressing the, the Lord, the Messiah who's coming as his Lord. So how can David how can the Messiah be David's son, right? Um, an heir to David, somebody in David's line. And, and what Jesus is exposing is another viewpoint that's around the circumference of the kingdom, not in the kingdom. And the viewpoint is basically this. Uh, there were so many, so many in Israel at this time that really looked at the kingdom of God through a, a, a nationalistic uh, lens, a, a national lens or a political lens or a, a loyalty uh, lens. And, and their hope uh, is that God's going to send David's son uh, to restore the monarchy to what it was, to restore the kingdom to what it was, and the good old days and the way that things were when Israel had its glory. Right, uh, and and it's a very national view, very political view of the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus is saying, now let's think about this. If it's David's son, then that makes David greater. But if David's saying that this person, this new king, is going to be his lord, then he can't simply be this heir to David that that you know the typical person would have been expecting. Yes, he would be in David's lineage but he's going to be so much greater than David. He's not just going to be a, a, a descendant of King David. He's going to be David's king. Uh, he's going to be the king of kings. He's going to you know, be the greatest uh, of, of all uh, rulers. His kingdom is going to transcend all the uh, national and political allegiances. So you know, Jesus is saying, look, yeah, you're, you're right to expect a, a king from this line. But at the heart of the kingdom of God is somebody far greater than you know, a king like David. Uh, at the heart of this kingdom is the king of kings who's going to judge not just, not just going to be the judge of Israel, but the judge of all the nations. Uh, and so broaden your, your perspective. The kingdom of God is a place where there's, you know, fundamentally we look at one another neither as Jew nor Greek, as Paul would say, but as brothers and sisters uh, in this uh, enormous kingdom, global kingdom of God. So What's at the heart of the kingdom? Uh, we've talked about some of the things that are around the perimeter, uh, per, uh, perimeter uh, a legal or moral perspective, a ceremonial or just sort of spiritual perspective, or a political or loyal uh, perspective. It's fine to be loyal to your country. 
It's fine to be you know, a good citizen, but where is our ultimate loyalty? So when you think about the heart of the kingdom, Jesus describes it. That the heart of the kingdom of God is a heart that loves the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Jesus does something really kind of unique here. He takes a a creed, uh, what it amounted to a creed in Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. It begins with, you know, the Hebrew word for, for listen, hear, O Israel. Uh, and, and in this age, in this century, the Shema had become to the Jewish community what maybe our Apostles' Creed is to us, you know, like, like we shared and recited just a little bit ago. Like fundamental faith. This is at the, at the core. This is what it means uh, to be a part of this community of faith, to be a part of the kingdom. Uh, and so Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 ends with this line, that these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is at the heart of the kingdom. Love the Lord with all your heart and everything about you, and that that commandment is to be on, on your heart. Uh, it's at the heart of who we are. And then Jesus also adds this commandment from Leviticus 19 about loving your neighbor. And that passage begins like this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Not not in your heart. Um, And instead, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So when we hear the language of heart, it's not just from the heart, it's with the heart. It's with every fiber of our being, every ounce of energy, uh, mental, emotional, physical, loving the Lord with that much passion and devotion and loving your neighbor with that much passion and devotion. I am the Lord. Not hating your neighbor in your heart, but loving him or her. This is a litmus test for what life in the kingdom is like. A place where we love our neighbor, where where we look at the person wearing the mask, and that person's my neighbor. And the person not wearing the mask, that person's my neighbor. And the person who is um, social distancing and, you know, obeying the rules, they're my neighbor. The person who's not social distancing and is, you know, being a little more free, they're my neighbor. The person, the person retweeting uh, Donald Trump is my neighbor. And the person retweeting Barack Obama is my neighbor. George Floyd was my neighbor. And the police officers who killed him are my neighbor. Ahmaud Aubrey is was my neighbor. And so were the McMichaels, they are my neighbor too. 
And right now and last night, you know, across cities throughout our country, uh, people who are protesting peacefully are our neighbors. And the people protesting violently are our neighbors. And the police officers and the state troopers and the National Guard members who are dressed in riot gear trying to maintain peace are our neighbors. We don't get to pick or choose who my neighbor is. It's easy to love. The, the neighbor who's like me, who thinks like me, who talks like me, who likes the things I like, that likes the things that you like, they're easy to love. But the kingdom of God is so transformative that God wants us to love our neighbor who's not like us, who's even opposed to us. And Jesus put it this way, do not hate your enemy. Love your enemy. Do good to those who persecute. This is the kind of neighbor love that God showed us. And this is at the heart of the kingdom of God. It takes a change of heart to get into the kingdom, to, to be in the heart of the kingdom. You and I need to love in such a way that, that we have to be transformed. And that's the conundrum. That, that's the problem that we face is that the kind of love that the kingdom requires is the kind of love that I can't measure up to, I can't do, as much as, you know, maybe we aspire to. There's, there's still racism in my heart. There's still hatred toward those who think and act differently than I do. There's still impatience and intolerance. And who's going to save me from me? Who's going to save you from you? How do we get into the kingdom? How do we move from the perimeter where we're trusting in our you know, moral and legal and spiritual and formal and political things instead of actually getting in? Well, so we, we acknowledge the beginning here that, all right, on the one hand, it's, it's good to know that we're not far off from a cure. It's good to know we're not far off, you know, and, and hopefully... Um, we'll have an end to the pandemic soon. It's good to know that, we're, that there are concrete steps and there's an impatience, a holy impatience for, for justice and for you know, more racial equality and so on. Maybe we're not far off from, from some advances there. But that still means that we're not there yet. Um, and so when Jesus says to the scribe, look, you're not far from the kingdom of God, he's probably like, oh, What then? How do we get in? You know, how, let's put it this way. How far away was the scribe? Truly. I mean, if you had to, to measure it, how far away might the scribe be from the kingdom of God? He might have been six feet away. Social distancing. I mean, that sort of 
we'll call it the, the, the personal bubble, you know. The kingdom of God is standing right in front of them, and it's Jesus himself. That's how far away the scribe is. He's as far away as he was standing from Jesus because Jesus is the kingdom. Believing in Jesus and hoping in Jesus is, is the kingdom of God. That's how we get in. We don't rely on our moral or our, our legal obedience. We rely on the one who fulfilled all of the law in our place, who is our righteousness. Like we don't get into the kingdom by being super sacrificial and giving away all of our stuff and being really spiritual and religious. Yeah, those are, those are good things. But that's not what gets us into the kingdom. The, the thing that gets us into the kingdom is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us when he was on the cross and gave himself for us to atone for our sins, to justify us. And we don't get into the kingdom by being, you know, loyal and, and faithful and, you know, and political or, or so on, you know, reducing the kingdom to some kind of national or political identity. No. The kingdom of God is something that we experience when we come in and find our identity and our priorities in Jesus himself. Jesus went so far as to say it this way, that, that I, I pray that, that they would know eternal life, that they would know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that that's eternal life, to be in a relationship with Jesus. That's our identity. Um, and that's how we enter into the kingdom. So it doesn't do us any good to believe uh, in a doctrine of the atonement if we don't know the one who atoned for us. We're not saved by believing this concept of justification if we don't know the one who justifies us. Uh, we're not into the kingdom by knowing about the kingdom. We're in the kingdom by knowing and being in a relationship with the king and so on. So how far away are any of us? Uh, the, the relational sort of protocol during the pandemic is this social distancing thing, keeping about six feet away from, from folks you know, who aren't in your household. Um, that is completely polar <laughs> to the kingdom of God when it comes to Jesus. We have to reduce our social distance from Jesus. We have to close that gap and be what the theologians call united to him, union with Christ. This is how Sinclair Ferguson described it. What's the default way of describing a believer? Well, perhaps it's exactly that, believer, um, or perhaps disciple, or born again, or saint, uh, most likely it is the term Christian. Yet these descriptions, while true enough, occur relatively rarely in the pages of the New Testament. Contrast these descriptions with the overwhelmingly dominant way the New Testament describes believers, and it is that we are in Christ. We're in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, like we were talking about uh, last week, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that matters is faith working through love. So neither face mask or not wearing face mask counts for anything if you're in Christ. Or Paul would say there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, united to Jesus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, united to Jesus, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Being in Christ means that we're, we're not just knowing about Jesus, but we know him. He knows us. 
We're not just enjoying the, the things that come through Jesus, but him himself. Like, I know it's a little bit after the fact, but uh, think about Christmas. <laughs> Have you ever met somebody that says, you know, um, I, I love all kinds of things about Christmas. I love the gifts. I love the food. I love the decorations. I love the family. I love just the, the season itself. But you know what I love? You know what the, my favorite thing about Christmas is? My favorite thing about Christmas is Santa. Have you ever heard anybody say how much they love Santa? I've only know, I only know one person who's ever just gushed about Santa. It's Buddy the Elf. No, we don't, you don't think about Santa at Christmas. You know, we think about family and decorations and, you know, the season itself. You know, and, and Santa's kind of like this thing over there. But it's completely the opposite when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's all kinds of blessings that Jesus pours out on us. All kinds of good things that we enjoy. But the, at the heart of the kingdom is a person. But the heart of the kingdom is our heart relationship with Jesus. Being in love with him, receiving his love, being united to him, and not losing that, that, that connection relationally uh, with Jesus. And what the, you know, the theologians have described as, as being in Christ is great, but I can love Jesus, I can, I can think about him, I can, I can try to stay connected to him through the day, but How do you and I know, like how do we know that he's going to stay connected to us? You can love him, but how do I know he's going to reciprocate? Well, the beauty of union with Jesus is not just that we're in Christ, but that he's in us. And he gives us two amazing promises, uh, mind-blowing when you stop and you actually consider what he promises us. First is that he gives us his spirit. It's Pentecost Sunday. This is the Sunday where the church recognizes the anniversary of, you know, those 50 days after the ascension and the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church. You and I truly have the spirit of Christ in us. It's not just theory. It's not just a concept. It's not just something we read about in a systematic theology textbook. It's something that Jesus promised us. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you're in Christ, his spirit is in you. You, you are a temple in which the Holy Spirit lives. And that's Jesus' promise to you. But he goes one step further. He doesn't just give us his spirit. He gave us his body. He gave us his own self. Uh, Paul put it this way, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live in by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ lives in us 
And the proof is that he gave himself out of love for us. That's what he was doing on the cross. Loving you, loving me, proving, proving that he will be in us. That We don't have to doubt whether or not he's going to love us back. So the real question is not, does he love me? He proved that on the cross. Do we love him? Are we united to him? Are we hanging out on the edges of the kingdom? Or are we pursuing him who is at the heart of the kingdom, loving him as much as he enables us with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? There's a lot in us. There's a lot in us. There's a lot of good things in us by God's grace, and there's a lot of a lot of difficult things in us. A lot of things like fear and anger and anxiety and hatred and bigotry and all these things that we've discussed. But because Jesus loves us, he moves in and he starts to work on those things. And he's working on those things in you and he's working on those things in me. And this is part of the glory of Christ in us. And I'll leave you with these words from Colossians 1, that God has made known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks that you have revealed Jesus to us, how he is in us, and that we can be in him that you bring us into the kingdom, that you give us the love that we need, um, that you have loved us with the love that we um, could not manufacture on our own. And we pray that you would continue to transform us as we hold on to Jesus, as we're united to him, as we believe in him and trust in him and follow him. Thank you for forgiving our sins through what he has done for us. Thank you for making us new creations by being united to him. And we pray that in your church that you would be raising up um, this entire generation of men and women and children who would show the world what it looks like in the heart of your kingdom, what it looks like to love you, to love our neighbors ourselves, and for you to get glory in your people as we live these new lives with one another and with our neighbors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.